Pastors and church planners around the world need your help to receive a confessional Reformed Baptist theological education. Introducing the William Carey Scholarship Fund at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. You can help students like Sam in India afford seminary training and Bible software with thousands of critically needed theological books. To learn how you can help, visit cbtseminary.org slash carry. You are listening to the Weekly Discourse on the Man of God Network, featuring a weekly lecture from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. Subsequent growth of, of premillennialism in the early church, because it did uh, blossom. The above treatment of the early emergence of premillennialism has restricted itself to the earliest fathers of the church who lived before the year 150. The evidence for premillennialism among them is, as we have seen, scanty indeed. In the next period of early church history, however, there was an undeniable growth of premillennial teaching. Premillennialism enjoyed great popularity during the second through the fourth centuries of the Christian era. This becomes evident, first of all, in the writings of Justin Martyr. Justin called martyr because he was uh, martyred for Christ. Justin, martyr, since his writings date from approximately 160, may be mentioned first here. He makes mention of his premillennialism in his dialogue with Trifo the Jew, chapter 76 to 81. It's very clear that Justin is a premillennialist. He says in chapter 80, and Andrew Harrison's going to read that for us. But I and others who are right-minded Christians on all points are assured that there will be a resurrection of the dead in a thousand years in Jerusalem, which will then be built, adorned, and enlarged, as the prophet Ezekiel and Isaiah, prophets Ezekiel and Isaiah and others declare. Right. That statement's a very clear testimony to Justin's premillennialism. The problem is that it's also clear <laughs> about something else. Justin's also very clear that not all Christians agree with him. You see it? I and others who are right-minded Christians on all points are assured that there will be a resurrection of the dead. Now, that's implied there. Um, but it's made explicit in a later chapter. Trifero the Jew, here's the context, is cross-examining Justin about his belief that Jerusalem will be rebuilt as the center of a joyful fellowship of the Christ and his people during the millennium. Is he really serious, asked Trifero, in affirming a doctrine held also by the Jews? Justin replies, I am not so miserable a fellow, Trifero, as to say one thing and to think another. I admitted to you formally that I and many others are of this opinion and believe that such will take place, as you assuredly are aware. But on the other hand, I signify to you that many who belong to the pure and pious faith and are true Christians think otherwise. So you see, the very statement uh, that's that cites, uh, that gives evidence of early premillennialism, also gives evidence of a division among right-minded Christians, Orthodox Christians, that at least, on this issue. So in this amazing statement, we learn that even in the early church, uh, premillennialism was uh, uh, 
the subject of argument. There were true Christians, says Justin, in the second century who were not premillennialist. Now, I think Justin's attitude is commendable and should have been imitated by many since this day. <laughs> premillennialism is not a test of orthodoxy. I was raised in churches where it was. And nor is it a mark of heresy. Too many premillennialists have said or strongly implied that anyone who was not a premillennialist was a heretic. Well, but the problem is there are heretics who are premillennialists, like Jehovah's Witnesses and, pre and Mormons as well. So this whole making of uh, premillennialism a test of orthodoxy is wrong. Too many opponents of premillennialism have repaid the compliment, and this is also wrong. <clears throat> well, uh, I'm going to stop right there. It's not a very good stopping point. Let's see, where, how far do I have to go to? Uh, I'm going to go just a couple more minutes. We'll, we'll, we'll jack back the time of dinner by five minutes, okay, it's just so I can get to a good stopping point. Certain other considerations should be kept in mind by modern premillennialists when they consider Justin's premillennialism. Uh, the first thing they should keep in mind is this is a very different kind of premillennialism than is taught today. One of the great thrusts of Justin's dialogue with Trifo the Jew is, that the, is the doctrine that the Christians are the true Jews. Now, you have to go read the book if you want to. But this is a pervasive emphasis of Justin in his dialogue with Trifo the Jew. Everywhere he argues that it's not the physical Jews, it's the Christians that are the true Jews. And this is not said in one or two statements. It permeates the entire book. <laughs> so uh, W.J. Greer is right when he says Justin's millennium will have no special place at all for the Jew, for he tells us over and over that Christians are the true Israelite race. Modern premillennialists should also be aware of the fact that Justin's premillennialism is inconsistent. Greer ably brings out these inconsistencies in Justin's premillennialism. Um, Janie, can you read that for me, please? Martyr is speaking of the kingdom for which Christians look. He denies that it is a human kingdom. You suppose we speak of a human kingdom, whereas we speak of that which is with God. Justin speaks of a general judgment at Christ's second coming, when death shall forever quit those who believe on him and be no more. When some are sent to be punished unceasingly into judgment and condemnation of fire, but those shall exist in freedom from suffering, from corruption, and from grief and immorality. From these statements, one would suppose there was no room for an earthly millennium in his teaching, yet inconsistently he says elsewhere that there will be a resurrection of the dead in a thousand years in Jerusalem, which will be built, adorned, and enlarged, and that therefore the general and in short the eternal resurrection and judgment of all men would likewise take place. Now, what Greer is pointing out here is something that Hill says in Regnum Kylorum. There really is evidence. It's not clear in some cases, but it's there. That a lot of these guys actually had changed their position. At one point held one of these two eschatological positions and then switched to the other one. It's clear uh, later on that Augustine was a premillennialist, then rejected it and became a nonmillennialist. If there is evidence that guys like Justin, as we're going to see next hour, Irenaeus, were amillennialists and then became premillennialists. 
At any rate, that's the argument that Greer is making here, that there's some inconsistencies in Justin's writings, and it may, may, I say, be an indication that uh, at some place along the line, uh, Justin had changed his position. At any rate, he makes clear that there there was a division of opinion among genuine Christians on this issue, even in the middle of the second century. <laughs> should be we should be surprised that there's a difference of opinion today. <clears throat> now I have uh, the outline of the course up to show you that we are in part one, historical introductions, and we are right in the middle of section one, eschatology in the early and medieval church. And I'm reviewing for you the. Uh, <clears throat> The early growth of premillennialism in the church, and we're doing this under its uh, early emergence, and now uh, the second point, let's just go up here, let's see where we are, the subsequent growth, and uh, we talked about Justin Martyr and his premillennialism, and now we're going to go on and talk about <clears throat> Irenaeus, Irenaeus, <clears throat> that's how you say I-R-E-N-A-U-A. A-E-U-S there. Irenaeus, the early church father, he was also, uh, like Polycarp before him, the Bishop of Lyon in Gaul, modern France. <clears throat> and he was among the growing premillennial movement in this period. Here's what Philip Schaff, the church historian, says by way of summary of his views. Irenaeus, on the strength of tradition... It's a little prejudiced on Schaff's part, but we'll read it. Irenaeus, on the strength of tradition from St. John and his disciples, taught that after the destruction of the Roman Empire, at the brief raging of Antichrist lasting three and a half years or 1,260 days, Christ will visibly appear, will bind Satan, will reign at the rebuilt city of Jerusalem with a little band of faithful confessors and the host of risen martyrs over the nations of the earth, and will celebrate the millennial Sabbath of preparation for the eternal glory of heaven. Then after a temporary liberation of Satan follows the vict final victory, the general resurrection, the judgment of the world, and the consummation in the new heavens and the new earth. Well, that's premillennialism, of course. <clears throat> but again, in the context of affirming his own premillennialism, Irenaeus admits that there are Orthodox Christians who disagree with him. This is interesting. We've seen that in Papia, in the citation of Papias. We've seen that in Justin Martyr. We're going to see it again here in Irenaeus. Here are his, here's his introduction to uh, his premillennialism. <clears throat> But since certain of those reckoned to be orthodox overstep the order of the promotion of the righteous and are ignorant of the method of the preparation for incorruption, they hold among themselves heretical opinions. Now, uh, <clears throat> that's a little bit of an interesting statement. What does he, he mean? Well, Charles Hill in Regnum Chilorum proceeds cogently and in detail to confirm Irenaeus is referring to Orthodox Christian who hold views which Irenaeus regards as similar to those of the Gnostic heretics. Uh, Hill says, in a manner reminiscent of Justin, Irenaeus perceives opposition to his millennial views emanating from both Orthodox and heretical circles. All right, so there are two, uh, there are two uh, enemies to his premillennialism. One are the Gnostic heretics. Uh, against which Irenaeus wrote many books. Uh, Gnostic heretics are, of course, against premillennialism because in common with all Orthodox Christianity, they hold their bodily resurrection, and Gnostics did not. 
among other heresies that they held. But now, what Irenaeus is saying is that there are Orthodox people who uh, hold what he regards as opinions held by the Gnostic heretics. Um, <clears throat> and so there is the, the, the uh, quotation actually implies that Irenaeus sees opposition to his premillennialism both from Orthodox and heretical circles. Tertullian uh, was a respected leader of the Western Church in North Africa early in the 3rd century, is known uh, as the author of the Orthodox terminology for the Trinity, for instance, first one to use the term Trinitas that we know of. But his, <clears throat> his, zeal, his zeal for the Christian faith and the rigor uh, that uh, uh, that made him indulge, caused him to admire from a distance the Montanist. The Montanists were concentrated in the eastern part of the church. Of course, he's in the western part of the church, so his admiration is from a distance, okay, which always makes a difference. But the Montanists were concentrated in the eastern part of the church. The Montanists were the charismatics. Can I put it that way? They were the kind of charismatics of the early church. And in fact, a study of them will show up a lot of similarities between the Montanist and like the Pentecostal movement. They believed in the continuation of prophecy after the apostles and also, like modern Pentecostalists, at least some of them, allowed women to hold office in the church. Sometimes Tertullian has been called a Montanist, but that's true only in a qualified sense <clears throat> because there are certainly some ways in which he did not agree with them. Tertullian did, however, agree with the Montanists with respect to their premillennialism. Philip Schaff says, <clears throat> Tertullian was an enthusiastic kiliast. Now, there's another term. See the word kiliast? Kiliast. Now, that, <clears throat> in the context and the way that Schaff is using it, is a synonym for premillennialism. It's from the Greek... Kilios, I think. I think the plural, well, Kilios, thousand. Is that right? Kilios, which means thousand. And so, Kiliasm is thousandism, <laughs> or premillennialism. Now, you got to be careful about this word Kiliast, because, at least in my experience, it's used in a lot of different ways, because it just basically is saying that they were millenarians. Now, in this case, Tertullian is saying, or Schaff is saying, that the Montanists were millenarians in the sense of being premillennialist. I have seen the word kiliasm used, however, it seems to me, of a different kind of millenarianism. That is to say, of postmillennialism. So when you see this word kiliasm, uh, you need to think most of the time premillennialism, but be prepared that in some cases kiliasm may not refer to premillennialism, but postmillennialism. Oh, uh, Rolo, we are on <clears throat> page 14 of the notes. That help? Am I right? Page 14? Okay. Okay. Uh, 
I should be I should have the PDF up here because maybe my Microsoft uh, document is different. Anyway, page thirteen or fourteen, roll. <clears throat> <clears throat> Where was I? <clears throat> well, anyway, the Montanists were the charismatics of the early church. Um, but And Tertullian has been called the Montanists, but that's only true in a very qualified sense. Um, but anyway, I was reading Schaff here. Tertullian was an enthusiastic Kiliast and pointed not only to the apocalypse, but also to the predictions of the Montanist prophets. But the Montanists substituted... Papusa in Phrygia for Jerusalem as the center of Christ's reign and ran into fanatical excesses which brought Kiliasm, premillennialism, into discredit and resulted in its condemnation by several synods in Asia Minor. Now, again, as Charles Hill shows in Regnum Chylorum, there is evidence in the context of Trinillion's assertion of premillennialism that orthodox opponents of his view existed. Montanism played a large part in the demise of early premillennialism. It's important, therefore, to go into a little detail about it. One authority gives this account of Montanist premillennialism. Um, Ashad, would you mind reading that? And some of the words that may be difficult are Phrygia and Papuza. Not long ago, after the beginning of the prophesying, Montanus crossed the Phrygian border and established himself with his followers in the city of Papuza. Papuza, with the neighboring village of Timion, he named Jerusalem. To this settlement, which was thenceforward the center and holy city of Eastern Montanism, he endeavored to gather adherents from all quarters. These facts, coupled with the lavish promises made by the prophets to their adherents and certain predictions of Maximilla, apart from a more explicit oracle attributed to another prophetess, prophetess, would lead us to the conclusion that the new prophecy taught men to expect in the near future at Papuza the final Perusia of the Lord. <clears throat> the primitive <coughs> botanists, in fact, held the doctrine of Kiliism. But Kiliism of a new kind. It was this hope of the Perusia at their Jerusalem that gained from them the name of Papusians. It is not necessary to pursue the history of Eastern. Montanism in detail. For some years after the death of Maximilla, the last of the original trio in 179 to 180, there were no prophets, and the church and the world enjoyed peace. Facts which, as anti-Montanistic writers pointed out, disproved the claims of the first prophets. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Just uh get on the same page with everybody. I'm going to the uh, <clears throat> I'm going to the PDF document here. Just give me a second. Mm -hmm. Looks like I'm not going to get 140%.
It's to 100%. Okay. <clears throat> Schaff provides this concluding summary of other premillennialists in this period of church history. After Tertullian, and independently of Montanism, Kiliasm was taught by Commodian towards the close of the 3rd century, Lactantius and Victorinus of Patau at the beginning of the 4th. Its last distinguished advocates in the East were Methodius, the opponent of Oregon and Apollinaris of Laodicea uh, in Syria. <clears throat> the, uh, this evidence makes clear that premillennialism commanded a broad following in the early church. Premillennialist, as the example of Charles Feinberg shows, often bring forward this early premillennialism as weighty doctrinal significance in favor of premillennialism. As we have seen, the pre prevalence of premillennialism may be easily overstated. In at least four of the earliest references to premillennialism in the early church, <clears throat> in Eusebius' citation of Papias and Justin Martyr and Irenaeus and in Tertullian, it is made clear in the context that Orthodox Christians existed who were not premillennialist. Charles Hill presents broad and cogent evidence for a widespread a millennial interpretation of Revelation 20 in the anti-Nicene church. Nevertheless, even when the evidence is properly weighed, it may appear difficult for the opponents of premillennialism to explain the presence and prominence of premillennialism in the early church. Somebody asks, where did it come from? Uh, you know, if it's, if it's not, if you're saying it's not in the New Testament, it's not biblical, then where in the world did it come from? Where did you, where did they get this from? Doesn't this suggest that in some way it must have emanated from within apostolic Christianity? And the answer to that question is no. There is another possibility, and that possibility is suggested by something we've seen already. As the quotations from Justin's dialogue with Trifo the Jew have already suggested, Justin realized that there was a strange kinship between premillennialism and Judaism. A Christian premillennialist could recognize a remarkable similarity between his own views and those of the Jews at this point. Now, this fact tends to confirm the view that premillennialism actually originated with ancient Judaism. Uh, Masselink, in his work attacking premillennialism, asked the question, what is the origin of this strange doctrine, you ask? The careful study of church history will furnish us with a conclusive answer. Premillennialism is a descent of ancient Judaism. There is a striking resemblance between the offspring and the parent. The old Jewish conceptions of an external messianic kingdom have found their perfect embodiment in the Christian, in the, pardon me, the Kiliastic theory of the millennium. Premillennialism is a relic of Judaism. Now, see, within pre-Christian Judaism, there had grown up an eschatological system which placed the coming messianic uh, kingdom prior to the eternal state. What they expected was for the Messiah to come, defeat the enemy of the Jews, and set up an earthly reign of Christ on earth prior to the final judgment and the eternal state. Uh, this earthly kingdom of the Messiah was not always uh, a thousand years. In fact, one of the texts says it's going to be 400 years long. Um, but at any rate, uh, this messianic kingdom on earth was to precede the eternal state. And this looks surprisingly like 
what uh, what Christian premillennialists believe about Christ returning, setting up an interregnum, a, a preliminary kingdom before the eternal state. And for Ezra, for instance, the Messianic kingdom lasts 400 years at the end of history. Uh, and the other, what's the other? <clears throat> oh, the other, the other book that has a similar doctrine is, is Second Baruch. <laughs> okay, if you're interested in that. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, Four Ezra and Second Baruch teach this kind of uh, Jewish premillennialism. It seems plausible that early Christians coming out of a Jewish background could have imported this view into their new faith. They may not have realized that the present gospel age was the Messianic kingdom. Perhaps they were still influenced to some degree by the Jewish hope for an external kingdom before the eternal state. Thus, it would have been easy for them to simply tack on this system after the gospel age. This would have straightforwardly and directly produced Christian premillennialism. It's possible, therefore, that the origin of premillennialism is not apostolic, but Jewish. Now, I don't know whether to get into this, but uh, I've been talking about this book, and um, I find it really uh, compelling and interesting and helpful. Um, And I've never told you what his actual thesis is. I've told you that he presents a lot of evidence for amillennialism in the early church. But let me tell you what his thesis is, and I think he proves his thesis. This was Hill's doctoral dissertation, because this is kind of interesting, and uh, it'll be significant when we come to the interpretation of Revelation 20. Um, His thesis is that premillennialism in the early church was marked by a distinct understanding of the intermediate state. In other words, he argues, and he presents the evidence for it, that if you were a premillennialist in the early church, this meant that you did not believe that all Christians went to heaven when they died. That, in fact, early premillennialism was marked consistently by this doctrine, that uh, early premillennialists held that instead of going to heaven when they died, Christians went to Sheol, or Hades. Okay? Let's see if I can draw this. This is all free of charge. It's not in the notes, but uh, I think you should know it. So So the notion was that there was an infernal Hades, okay? And the notion was, and this derives to some extent from intertestamental Judaism too, that there were two parts of Hades, okay? Hades is not heaven. Heaven is up here. Hades is down here, okay? Here we are in the three-level world, okay? But Hades has two parts. It has a part uh, for the good souls, which is it's nice, but it's not heaven, okay? <laughs> and it has a part for the bad souls, which is bad, but it's not quite hell either. Okay? So you have good souls and bad souls, and they both go to Hades. And here's, here's the unique thing about early premillennialism, held by Justin Martyr and Irenaeus and a lot of these boys. They held that uh, all Christian souls did not go to heaven when they died. They went to Hades, the good part of Hades. Okay? And that, uh, that this doctrine of a split-level Hades 
with the good souls going of Christians going to Hades until the second coming of Christ, at which point, of course, the good souls were resurrected to take part in the millennium. Okay? This was a distinctive feature of early premillennialism, held by many of them. So that, in a, in a sense, you don't need to know what a person believed about the millennium to know, uh, to uh, per, per se, to know what eschatology they held. Because you could tell if they were premillennialist if they held this idea of an infernal, underneath the world kind of idea of a split level Hades where Christian souls went. You say, what do they do with Elijah, who clearly went to heaven even in the Old Testament, and 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 other statements about Christians going to heaven when they died? Well, they made these exceptions. Martyrs went to heaven when they died. Uh, people who didn't die went to heaven, but not most people. Okay, so it holds true that uh, that for the early premillennialist, uh, the the what they look forward to in terms of getting out of Hades uh, was was the millennium. So the millennium really sat, was the place where uh, the good souls finally began to experience uh, the blessings for which Christ had intended them. Okay? Now, he says the notion, I know this is not true of modern premillennials, but he says the notion that uh, all Christians go to heaven when they die, not just the people that don't die and not just the martyrs, but all Christians go to heaven when they die, is the distinguishing feature of early amillennialism. And he shows in case after case after case, where on the one hand, premillennialism is marked by this doctrine, that amillennialism is marked by the idea that, that Christians enter their reward at death when they go to heaven to reign with Christ. Uh, which interpretation, which, which statement, of course, assumes and in many cases, there's direct reference to Revelation 20, verses 4 to 6. And so, uh, believe it or not, uh, amillennialism is marked by the notion that in the intermediate state, Christians go to reign with Christ when they die and to participate in his resurrected glory. And this is the millennium for amillennialists, whereas since Premillennialists held the old Jewish doctrine of the good souls going to Hades when they died. They had to have a future earthly millennium to uh, replace the intermediate state and the glory of the uh, of the souls with Christ in heaven when they died. And there's a kind of inner logic to the position. Now, I want to make clear, I don't know of any modern premillennialist that holds this. It's just the point that Hill is making is that this was the dichotomy in the early church. This is what early premillennialism was characterized by this doctrine, whereas early amillennialism was characterized by the doctrine that Revelation 24 to 6 teaches that all Christians go to reign with Christ when they die. Okay? That makes sense, Jeannie. So, in this view, does that mean that when Christ comes back, the bad souls went to hell? Uh, I don't know. I can't answer that question. It does mean the good souls are resurrected to take part in the millennium. I don't know if the bad souls just stay here because I I think 
that most premillennials would say that they're not resurrected till after the millennium. So they probably just stay in the bad part of Hades. Okay. Yeah, Jameis? Does the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory have any, any way involved, evolved from this at all? Is there no connection? I think it does, Jameis. I think there was some real confusion in the early church, and that the idea that most Christians didn't go to heaven when they died, that they went to Hades, somehow gradually merged over, uh, when it was overlaid with a lot of tradition and other things, into the doctrine of purgatory. And I think that's a very mm, plausible uh, uh, connection you're drawing there. It is, yeah, it is. Uh, all I'm saying is that there was a there was uh, a lot of confusion about this issue, and it had everything to do with the argument between amills and premills in the early church. So, um, now. Granted, Protestant um, premillennialists no longer hold this. They do hold, many of them, that in the Old Testament this held true. Okay? What's that? Yeah, Abraham's bosom is not heaven. It is, this is what I was taught when I was growing up, it's the good part of Sheol or Hades. Okay? Sheol is the Hebrew word, Hades is the Greek word for the same thing, the underworld, supposedly. Now, as I'm going to tell you later in the course, I think there's a lot better explanation for the whole, for the Old Testament and what it taught on this issue. But yeah, so even today, a lot of premillennialists would hold, and other people too, I don't know, uh, that uh, you had at least in the Old Testament uh, that the souls of the righteous did not go to heaven when they died. They would connect this with the fact that Christ hadn't died yet, and therefore their sins weren't in the full sense forgiven, and so they couldn't go to heaven. That's the kind of connections it was associated with in the church I was raised. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Weekly Discourse. If you've been blessed by this week's discourse, please consider subscribing to the Man of God Network so that you can continue to be blessed with resources like these. If you'd like to learn more about Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, visit us at cbtseminary.org.